0: The Kern Institute Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Medical Education Matters. I'm Michael Brown, and I'm so excited to bring you a couple of conversations that Herodotus Ellenus and I recorded with two of our collaboratories. What are collaboratories? As many of our listeners know, our collaboratories program is our small grants program designed to fund transformative medical education research. The word collaboratory combines the words collaboration and laboratory, and it refers to a group of people from different backgrounds and at different institutions who use their differences and their unique perspectives to solve a problem in a new and innovative way. Uh, We launched this program back in the fall of 2020 with a request for proposals. We went from letters of intent to full proposals, and then we ultimately funded six research collaboratories. So their funding started in the summer of 2021, and then in the summer of 2022, we extended funding for all of these collaboratories for another year. So these conversations are designed to hear about the program so far and about their plans for this second year of funding. The two conversations today are about faculty development. First, we speak with Bill Branch and Corinne Abraham from Emory University about their collaboratory focused on professional identity development for faculty members. The second conversation is with Richard Green and Walter Parrish at NYU about their program for faculty who are underrepresented in medicine. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome, welcome, everyone. We have Bill Branch and Corinne Abraham here with us today. Uh, We're so excited to get a chance to talk to you and to talk about your collaboratory project. Uh, Let's just do a little brief introduction. Uh, Bill and then Corinne, you wanna just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: So I'm Bill Branch. I uh, I am the Carter Smith Senior Professor of Medicine at Emory University, and I've been interested in projects like this for at least thirty-five years. Uh, I was at Harvard before I came to Emory. Uh, when I came to Emory, I uh, was very interested at that point in having an opportunity to mentor faculty. But uh, I also noticed that my medical students at Harvard that had been so Wonderful. We're getting kind of burned out and sort of losing their humanism in the residency programs. So I wanted I I wanted to address that, and I did so by starting programs in intensive faculty development to develop uh, role models for humanistic teaching. Uh, We were successful with those at 30 medical schools, and then. About eight years ago, we switched into interprofessional groups to see if we could impact uh, that part of uh, health care. And uh, I'll end by saying this is one of those. In fact, it is the second time we have tried interprofessional groups. And we're just delighted with the results. We love doing interprofessional groups. We're in our second one now at Emory.
2: Yeah, I'm Karen Abraham. I am faculty at the School of Nursing. I'm a clinical associate faculty and I, I hold a joint appointment at the Atlanta VA. And um, I like to think about the, my dual position as an opportunity for me to not only be you know, an educator but to have those situated learning, authentic learning opportunities. Uh, I, I've been interested in team science and patient safety and quality probably for 25 years, so a lot of my teaching methods and approaches and clinical instruction have really been um, focused on that professional formation. How do we you know, develop that identity and how do we learn to work with others? Um, and I, I was fortunate enough, as Bill mentioned, about eight years ago to uh, really the pleasure to meet and work with, with Bill in our initial work at, uh, I guess, revising the curriculum as an interprofessional curriculum.
0: Well, thanks to you both. Uh, we'd like to know what's the title of your project. And then if you could name off the other members of your collaboratory team, we want to make sure we recognize them too.
1: Our project is titled Transforming Healthcare Education by Educating Faculty Leaders in the Post-COVID Era. And um, we, we we named it that because we saw that many opportunities would open up at the end of the COVID pandemic. Uh, The others in the collaboratory include uh, Deborah Litzelman at Indiana University, Alvin Chow at UCSF, and Elizabeth Ryder at Boston Children's Hospital Harvard Medical School, and of course Richard Frankel who's been a close collaborator with me on these projects since we started them over 20 years ago.
3: Thank you, Annie. It sounds like such a a great group of educator researchers to be involved in this this project. I'm curious, um, and I'll start with you, Corinne, first. You mentioned your dual role as well as that professional formation, teams-based work that you like to do what prompted you know your group to propose this project as a topic of research
2: given the i guess the climate during the pandemic and seeing the struggles of our clinical staff and the in the challenges confronted by our faculty and just this this the, the unrest in our country and the struggles in our clinical site in our clinical settings really prompted us to I guess it inspired us to think about something needs to be done. I mean there's people are hurting and struggling and what can we do to offer that and what how can we revise and think about revamping our our curriculum and you know it was great to see an opportunity and there've been multiple a multitude of opportunities across the country really concerned about provider well-being and just the well-being of our health system. And my work in the health system, you know, my focus at the VA is on quality improvement and patient safety and and seeing the impact of the pandemic, highlighting the challenges that we have with having um, adequate support for that, that well-being and the opportunity to have those relationships to support each other. So that really prompted us to, we saw it as an opportunity, looking at, you know, structural racism and how that is affecting and maybe interfering with. Having that those trusting team dynamics in the health system when we really really critically need it, so I think that's it was both the opportunity for the you know that came from the call for um, submission as well as the recognition of the need.
3: And Bill, any anything that you want to add on this proposal piece? That was a
1: tremendously good answer. I'm not sure that that I should add anything to that uh we did i did myself with some of the other people we wanted to study certain uh parts of this which we'll get to later and uh we we saw the opportunity uh and uh i I think it has you know it's been even more than what we had anticipated So um, Bill and Corinne, thank you again for uh,
3: giving us a little bit of the information for the project and the title. I'm curious what prompted you to uh, come up with this project and propose it for an award.
1: Well, as I said, we've been doing uh, intensive longitudinal faculty development for over 20 years. And uh, we've done it at 30 schools. We have published uh, both qualitative and quantitative studies. And we have published a theory of learning uh, based on critical reflection synergized with experiential practice of of the ideas that one reflects on. And uh, we found this worked very well for our original purpose which was creating humanistic role models. And in a way, that's about more than just learning how to communicate in a humanistic way, uh, which is a skill. But we're also trying to change people's... If humanism is a character trait, we're trying to build up that as a character trait and uh, to to make people be more humanistic. We were successful, we think, and we then uh, tried this with interprofessional groups, and it has been, well, it's been, it's been very interesting because the focus naturally shifted because our groups are not tightly structured; they do have a little structure, but people can kind of shift into whatever seems to be most relevant. It shifted to relationships, and relationships specifically with 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 each other, with interprofessional people from you know from different professions that had not communicated much with each other. As far as the timeline goes, this is not our first grant. Uh, when we heard about the grant, we thought it was a great fit for what we wanted to do next, and uh, we you know, put it together. I usually write the grants and, uh, you know, with, you know, with constant revisions and suggestions from all of the collaborators. And so we put that together uh, in, within the deadline of the Kern Foundation. And we adapted our program. Uh, we looked at what the opportunities would likely be meeting the needs and the changes that would occur as COVID began to resolve. And we created a partially new curriculum. We revised the old curriculum, but we added a a number of sessions on such things as a very expanded diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, component, a component on building character, directly addressing that uh, topic, a component on how to achieve a just and humane culture. Uh, and this, This is a challenging but incredibly important idea that we will achieve that. And our goal is that if we train a small group of about 12 at each school, if we repeat that, it becomes twenty four and so forth, thirty six, eventually there's quite a group of people that are steeped in in this learning that begin to have influence, which is growing on the entire institution. So we are trying to change the culture.
2: I think the support in the structure for the collaboratory, I love that word and the framing for it, and I think having, a structure for um, reporting and for sharing really helped. I mean, it certainly is complicated when you have somebody in California, you know, coast to coast, but that enriches the conversation. And the fact that, um, you know, our, this group has worked together, there's a shared passion for the topic. Um, and there's there's a lot of trust among members, so much so that it's not like we're all looking to agree with each other, but having really... Um, there's expertise where people um, share and maybe push back a little bit or offer other ideas and offer suggestions. So, you know, having that, um, that critique and that shared um, collaboration among members with the structure, I really think helped us to not only create, but I mean, the number of revisions and relooking and feedback that we give, it's not like, oh, we're done with this. Let's check it off. It's continually looking to enrich um, the sessions that we've created. And to be able to continue to do that has really been wonderful to learn about how we did last time and how we might build upon it to enhance.
1: So Corinne joined, joined in the program around the time we started Interprofessional. She was recommended by the Dean of the Nursing School to be the right person to do this with me at Emory she just summarized our culture. I think we have our own culture. And, you know, I think it's a culture of humanism, respect, and communication with each other, open and uh, shared support and communication.
0: So I love hearing you talk about those dynamics and how things came together. Um, And it's also noteworthy, I think, that in some ways you were inspired by the pandemic and Asking yourselves what's coming next, what's coming out of this? Of course, one of the elements that the pandemic may have influenced is how your team was able to come together. Uh, you've talked about it as kind of you know thinking post, but I'm wondering, as you were planning and implementing things during the the pandemic, were there any ways in which the pandemic impeded uh, your progress?
1: I just went back to my office for the first time in a year yesterday. Uh, it, it was. It felt. It really was kind of made me feel elated to be there and see a few people, but the place was still kind of empty, and uh, and I ran. You know, I I got my uh, administrative assistant, and uh, we were trying to do some work, uh, and we were having a problem, and they called the IT person, and I was so impressed with the way everybody there works together and. Uh, helps each other and there's so much so much comfort and friendship there between all of us and all kind of really different people from different backgrounds doing different jobs and so the things you know we miss that and working on zoom is not quite the same thing but on the other hand of course I'm, we'd have to work on zoom anyway with people in california Uh, Indiana and uh, Boston. So part of it is uh, really the same way we've been working. And part of it is that we do miss and we see that people are feeling isolated and we hear from people, uh, mainly the participants in our groups, about their sense of lacking the connection and how much they want the connection. And and amazingly, we were able to get a, a very good connection. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I think the connections that we achieved virtually between the participants were really outstanding. We could have done better in person, but not that much better.
2: Yeah, and I think just to add on to that, I think we were really not certain in terms of our marketing for the program what the appeal would be based on of course it was at the height. I mean, there was a lot of uncertainty when we implemented this project. And so we, you know, tried to think of strategies to I don't want to say entice people, but to, you know, you know, interest people to, to join, not not certain. And you know, all of us I think had really robust applications, which really spoke to, I think, the need for Um, connecting, like Bill said, just be able to connect with each other. But that was the other part we were worried about is how do we build community? How do we build a a connection? And, you know, we had to think of different strategies, you know, for example, how to brand, you know, the branding and having, um, we sent a little gift, like a little, what do you want to call it? I don't, just a little goodie bag, really, of, you know, welcome to the group, right? So that we're a group, here's a little welcome. And, Um, and ultimately, I think people really appreciated the flexibility for being able to have those, um, to have the meetings where they could still meet their demands for family, because, you know, some of them are still homeschooling, and some of them are, you, you know, so they have all the home things that related to the pandemic changes, as well as work obligations, and balancing even more, I think. So, I think because of, you know, really, we were able to be more creative and flexible in the approach that we took. And it really turned out great.
1: We didn't know how this would turn out, uh, doing it virtually, Uh, this very intensive, interpersonal sort of activity on a virtual basis. One of the things one of the participants said at the end of our group really impressed me. Uh, She said, When I looked at the list of topics, I thought, why should I do this? Because these are all the same topics that we've been doing everywhere. I mean, diversity, equity and inclusion, we've had several workshops and so forth. And I thought I would sign up anyway, because uh, I knew some of the people and I knew they were outstanding people. But she said, at the end, now that I'm at the end of this experience, I can tell you this was nothing like anything else I've ever done. The way we dealt with these topics was so different from what we've done before. It was so much more personal, so much more of a group process of sort of uh, supportiveness and authenticity and ability to really talk to each other, which... Which is never—I've never had that before in any of the other uh, workshops and courses that I took. So we 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 took that and other comments like that, and we were just again we were just delighted because it shows you it showed us that we did achieve what we were hoping to achieve within the structure of a program that was also dealing with skills and knowledge and. Learning about topics.
3: Well, it, it's certainly what what I heard from both of you is some keywords that I want to put out there for the audience. is that um, personal touch, the importance of connections, the shared passion of your team, the expertise, as well as that respectful challenging in order to make this program work. So what I found interesting that you said, Bill, is that despite the pandemic, despite the Zoom, those connections still happened, and you were able to put that personal touch with the groups and the project moving forward. So... Um, I applaud your work and the um, the ability to maneuver through this challenging times. Um, it's been about a year since the award has been granted, so I'm curious if you could share maybe some preliminary results. I know you mentioned you've accomplished what you thought you accomplished and more of what you thought you were doing. Could you share some preliminary results with us?
1: We're looking at things both quantitatively and qualitatively. And unfortunately, we don't have the results of the surveys that we did before and after the first group. And we're just doing them for the first time in our second group. My own uh, belief is that the survey on how do people uh, respond to interprofessional uh, work uh, is going to show uh, a ceiling effect from the beginning. Uh, it will show that the, the people that we've got are already well above the average in in that in in, in that kind of survey, and, and it's unlikely they'll they'll get significantly better. Uh, that that'll just tell us who we have. Uh, the qualitative, which is our love, is what digs into this to. Sh- to try to find out what's really going on. Uh, why is the program working and what does it accomplish? And uh, preliminarily, one thing that I mentioned before is the theme that comes across is relationship in, this, in these interprofessional groups. It's sort of like, I never knew any physicians before I always, they always seemed arrogant and distant. They didn't seem to cooperate. And now I'm here with some physicians and I'm communicating with them on an equal basis. I find out they're regular people. I understand the pressure they're under. I begin to see what they're like. I I begin to feel like I can work with them. And and, and we see that over and over and over again, these completely new perceptions of of one group, sort of in group of either physical therapists or nurses or physicians, a new new way of looking and imagining what they can do with people in the other professions. And uh, so in a way, this is like having a new professional identity, It's not It's not like we think they move from one stage to another. That would be a, a tall order. But we see that parts of them move from one stage to another and growth. I thought personal growth and professional growth, growth in one's capacity to communicate, to support, to be able to transmit empathy, to, to be compassionate and respectful, that kind of growth, that's, personal as well as professional, was throughout. It was almost embedded within everything we analyzed, every piece of qualitative data that we
2: analyzed. And and I I can add um, as well, we were fortunate enough to um, provide um, CME credit, um, continuing education credit. So we did conduct a a program evaluation survey and and received some feedback and and we did a debrief at the end as well where we heard, you know, feedback that, you know, the the growth that they had and how they see things differently and have um, a, a new lens and a new perspective for teaching students for how they will inter how they interact with their own team, so you know you know asking that question how might you, you know, um, it's not like you have a toolbox but it's it's that perspective and appreciation and through that developed through the relational learning in in the program. So we did hear some of that just, and again, that was purely, you know, merely for the continuing education program evaluation, but it provided good feedback that it was, um, that the modules were valuable. The topics were helpful.
0: So from these results and from your description of the team and how it came together, you know, I, I think this is a model of a successful collaboratory, and it's one of the things we were hoping for most by funding a group who'd done so much research together. We had high confidence that this group was going to continue to do high-level work. Uh, but of course, no project goes forward without some difficulties or things that are unexpected. And I think part of what shows the strength of the collaboratory's model is the ability to face challenges and overcome them. So I'm curious. So over the course of the past 12, 15 months, what kind of challenges did you face in getting this program up and running and and continuing?
1: It was very slow in terms of analyzing and writing up our results. Uh, It took us much longer than it had previously taken. I can't explain that completely. Uh, Maybe it's sort of, some kind of malaise that we all had because we were not in our offices, sort of working full time. Um, I, I think that uh, I, I didn't feel that we had too much trouble with our own group or with the other other facilitators with their groups uh, we didn't know what the uh, response was, would be. And we, we, I mean, first of all, we got support from Emory University through the Woodruff Health Educators Academy in sponsorship and help with publicity, which was wonderful. And we were just delighted. We didn't know what, whether they would support us that much. And then after that, we had an outpouring of people who wanted to uh, be in the group. So we had to choose, uh, you know, 12 people out of about 40 some odd people that wanted. And these were high level people, some of them I know, leaders of major programs at Emory. And uh, I, I think it was because of the pandemic that we had such an outpouring, but we didn't know. You know, for all we knew, we might have only had less than what we wanted. And yet we ended up with far more. So some things uh, may have actually gone better and other things uh, may have been more difficult because there was this sort of inertia that affected. I think it. I felt it and I, I felt it in my colleagues as we were trying to get these things done and they were just taking Two, three times as long to get it done.
2: Yeah, and I'll just say I think in terms of working in a collaboratory, you know, each of us have different organizations that we're part of, right? And so some of those organizational, I would say barriers, but we were all a little bit on a little different timeline. I mean, we we moved together and we talked about things coming up, but some of us were further ahead or behind. And so I think that did delay getting um all of the surveys completed because of you know the timeline varied across some of the sites. And so um getting everybody caught up on the same page when maybe we're two or three sessions ahead or behind. Um, you know, and like Bill said, it's you know everybody has their own, you know, teaching requirements and yeah maybe a little bit of malaise or you know varied administrative support, et cetera. But I think regardless of those um I think everybody pulled it together great and had wonderful um, successes to celebrate and, and to learn from. And everybody is excited to have continued funding and to be able to, you know build upon what we what we learned and expand upon it.
3: Uh, that's that's fantastic um and information and uh, obviously things that many of us have experienced throughout the last couple of years anyway, the challenges, but some of the opportunities as well. So what are the future directions that this project is going to take?
1: Well, I think all of us uh, and others weren't part of this particular collaboratory, but have previously worked with us, do have a passion for this work. And I think that we will continue to work together. Uh, I think that by now we have enough institutional support to continue with, it, with the teaching that we do. And of course we can always evaluate that. We'll be looking for sources of funding to further our research agenda. Uh, one of the things that I've discovered is through this whole time has been that whenever we do a qualitative work we discover new ideas that were not conceived of previously it's just amazing how qualitative work and reading what people write about themselves generates new hypotheses so a lot i can't predict what the next hypothesis will be but i'm already excited about it uh, continuing to complete the exploration and explore, you know, the growth that people have in our in our, env- our kind of uh, environment, the micro environment of our course, and uh, why they have it. What is it that triggers continually triggers people to grow in, in terms of professional and personal uh, development, adult development. Uh, that uh, remains exciting, and I think there's much to be learned, which we haven't yet uh, tapped into.
2: Yeah, and, and just to kind of piggyback on that, I think part of our sustain sustainability plan is to build this cadre of like-minded people really interested in, in humanism. And so we are, you know, we recruited a, fa- a facilitator in training, so to speak, to and, and you know, had reached out to past participants to join as part of the 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 I would say leadership group or the group to help sustain this. So it's not just having a group who participated, but who then turned to being leaders in this initiative, at least in our in our Emory community, right? So um, that's kind of how we are hoping because we are looking towards sustainment and building.
0: So one thing we try to do at the end of these podcasts is to things down for the listener. So they have a sense that, you know, here they've gotten a lot of rich detail about a project. But ultimately, if you were going to leave the listener with one or two takeaways from your project pieces to take away from what they've listened and to hold close and, and know going forward, what would you say are the key takeaways uh, from your project so far?
1: we're working with uh, faculty and uh, what I think it's the key takeaway is uh, faculty at this point in time want connection they, they want to work on relationship and on uh, becoming you know more humanistically oriented communicators uh, with not only with other professionals but with Patients, families, administrators, everyone. So there's a desire for this, and it requires the effort to put the pro- a program together that works in order to meet that uh, need. And we're, we're, we've demonstrated that it works. We've demonstrated there's a need. We would like to see it expand uh as far as possible because we think you know in a way this is a, this is a tremendous solution for a lot of a lot of problems that that are out there
2: yes i think professionals regardless of rank and how long they've been around are thirsty for opportunities for a safe space to share authentic thoughts and to learn with and from each other
3: this has been a pleasure. We, we love the conversation, the information that you provided about your project. It clearly shows your passion about this particular topic. And we appreciate that both you gave some take away messages for the audience and also shared the information with us. So thank you both so very much.
0: Thanks again. I echo everything Herodotus said. It's wonderful to have this opportunity for more of an in-depth conversation about your project. And I know our listeners are going to love hearing about this too. So on behalf of Herodotus Alanis, uh thank you to Bill Branch and to Corinne Abraham. I'm Michael Brown. Uh, looking forward to bringing you more interesting conversations like this soon. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to talk to Richard Green and Walter Parrish from NYU. Uh, Let's just quickly jump into things and hear a little bit about the two of you. So Richard and then Walter, tell us a little bit about yourself.
4: Hi, uh, my name is uh, Richard Green. I'm an internal medicine doctor at uh, Bellevue Hospital in New York City. Uh, and a faculty member at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Uh, I have about eight jobs, but among them are, I work in the Primary Care Residency Program as an Associate Program Director. And uh, I'm fortunate to work with Walter and some of our other collaborators in the Office of Diversity Affairs. I'm the Director of Health Equity Education. And so I oversee uh, the inclusion of health equity topics uh, into the curriculum along with obviously many, many other people.
5: I am Walter Parrish, Um, my pronouns are he, him and his. I am the Director of Diversity and Inclusion within the Office of Diversity Affairs at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Um, I have the privilege of working with uh, Richard and um, about eight other other folks in our office uh, to lead, strategize and and educate our community on on a variety of topics um, around DEI and health equity. Um, and support our students and our learners um, and our faculty um, as well. And so um, have a great time doing that. And I'm also a PhD candidate uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
0: UW-Madison, that's my alma mater. I love it. Ah, go Badgers. Go Badgers. That's yes.
4: Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I always feel like after we do these introductions that we should do separate podcasts with each of you just to talk about your your other work. But for this podcast, we have the pleasure of talking with you about your collaboratory. So uh, I'd love to hear the
4: title of your project. And then let's recognize the other members of your team. Uh, Sure. Our uh, collaboratory is the NYU UCSF Collaboratory to Advance URIM or uh, Underrepresented in Medicine Faculty in Academic Medicine. Uh, so uh, I'm the, uh, the PI, Richard Green, and then uh, Walter is one of our team members. Uh, and then we work with Dr. Joseph Ravenel, uh, who is our Associate Dean of Diversity, uh, and uh, Ms. Tiffany Cook, who was formerly in the Office of Diversity Affairs at NYU and is now at uh, UMass Chan School of Medicine in their Office of Diversity Affairs. Uh, and so we're expanding our team in that way. Uh, and then at UCSF, our uh, co-PI is uh, Dr. Sarah Alba Wen, uh, and, uh, we also work with Dr. Beth Harleman, uh, and Dr. Ariane Tarani joined our team this year.
5: We also, uh, have many stakeholders in this, uh, work. Um, Dr. Binga Ogadegbi, who is the founding director of the Institute for Excellence in Health Equity at NYU has been a great, um, sponsor and stakeholder, um, as well as uh, Alicia Fernandez, who is at UCSF um, as well. And so um, we're really grateful for all of the folks who uh, join us in this work. That's
3: fantastic. And it sounds like the support that is needed, especially with the last, you know, I don't know, three to five years of um, challenges that our nation has had, both here, I would say nationwide, but also internationally. So Um, One of the follow-up questions that I have is, what prompted you guys to propose the project? I know the Kern and the collaboratories were looking for this audacious project. So help us understand your thought process in uh, proposing the project and the question, the topic of research.
4: Can I start with a sort of a personal story about what uh, how this all came about, uh, and then uh, I'll let Walter say a little bit about like the the the, uh, the slightly less audacious project that started at NYU and then grew into our collaboratory. So I uh, was a Macy Faculty Scholar from the Josiah Macy uh, Jr. Foundation, and it's a um, a faculty development scholarship that uh, is intended to sort of help you elevate your profile and meet people around the country. And uh, I started just before lockdown in COVID. Uh, And I was really excited. Uh, I had a trip to San Francisco planned and I knew a bunch of people in San Francisco and at UCSF. Uh, And so I met up with, uh, while I was there, a former med student of mine, Dr. Sarah Schaefer, who is now Dr. Sarah Alba Wen. Uh, And um, we had coffee Just to talk about the work that we were doing and we talked about doing diversity work. Uh, She also works in uh, the internal medicine residency program out there. Uh, And she works with Dr. Alicia Fernandez who Walter mentioned earlier who's one of my uh, sort of national mentors uh, in health equity work. Uh, Dr. Fernandez runs the uh, Latinx Center of Excellence out at UCSF. And so we started talking and we had this like Two and a half hour conversation about the overlap of the work we do and ideas about what she was doing that was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I started talking about this faculty development project that we had just started for URIM faculty. in medicine. Uh, and then the call came out and, it, I, you know, we started thinking like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could collaborate and really hear about what's going on at UCSF and um, sort of align our programs. Um, and so I'll let Walter say a little bit about like what the FLDP, so the Faculty Leadership Development Program that we had been developing at the time uh, at NYU is. Uh, and then I'll talk a little bit about what was happening at UCSF.
5: Yeah, thank you, Richard. So the Faculty Leadership Development Program uh, is an initiative that provides mentorship, uh, professional development um, and networking for underrepresented faculty here at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Uh, The goals of the program are to build and develop strong peer uh, mentor sponsorship relationships, um, integrate personal and professional identities, um, and to practice and apply inclusive leadership skills within a variety of professional contexts. And so um, this is crucial for us, one, because um, it really impacts our faculty uh, workforce diversity. Um, and so we want to um, build a strong workforce diversity, but we also need to keep people at the institution and provide resources and mentorship and development opportunities for the, for those faculty. And so um, this session, I'm sorry, this initiative provides uh, about nine sessions of um, professional development. Um, And then we also have a culminating project at the end uh, where we divide the cohort cohort of 16 into groups where they pitch an idea to the institutional leadership that will hopefully have an impact on uh, the faculty experience at NYU, Um, not necessarily regarding the DEI issue, though um, many of the projects are related to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, or health equity. Um, And since then, um, since the first cohort, uh, we've had uh, a few initiatives that have um, picked up uh, some traction. Uh, One of the things I think was really critical for our institution was um, the implementation of vice and associate chairs of DEI within the academic departments and accompanying um, committees for those uh, departments as well to do work around those issues. And so uh, we're really looking forward to future cohorts. We just enrolled um, our third cohort uh, and we have our second session actually next Friday. So um, it's a very exciting time. And Richard, I know you want
3: to talk about UCSF, but I don't want to forget some of, you know, a follow-up question for Walter. So you mentioned the mentorship as part of the program and that's dear to my heart. I'm doing a mentorship program throughout the country regarding the anesthesiology educators. Was this a mentorship program within the institution or a mentorship program to expand outside of the institution?
5: Great question. So, yeah, this is uh, explicitly internal to the institution. Um, because NYU Langone is such a large enterprise, um, it's really important for faculty, particularly underrepresented faculty, um, to uh, build connections and and with each other. Um, Oftentimes what we heard when we first started was that uh, faculty, this was the first time faculty was meeting this many people of color (laughs) from around the institution, right? This is the first time uh, faculty got to engage, really engage with folks who um, share various identities um outside of their department right and so that was really signaling to us that um this was an opportunity to help people expand their network just within the institution um number one so they can help you know learn the culture um get mentorship and how to um, advance in administrative leadership roles um and just overall you know development with um thriving within our uh, academic uh, institution Great. And then Richard,
3: you were going to elaborate a little bit about the project through the UCSF angle.
4: Yeah. I mean, uh, One thing I want to say about sort of the development of FLDP at um, at NYU is that it it was uh, the planning started. So the timing was sort of very critical. The planning started long before uh, COVID and uh, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and it was going to be based on some of our educational leader uh leadership development uh, programming that we already had, uh, and then with the timing of COVID and the murder of George Floyd, it expedited our timetable, and so we recruited and initiated the um, uh, the first cohort over the summer of 2020, which was like a really critical time, I think, as Walter was saying, to sort of bring faculty together and make sure folks knew that they were not alone, uh, and that was the experience, right? Many um, many Black and Latinx faculty members in their department are one of a few or the only um, sort of people in their department. And so part of the idea was to bring folks together but also to create a platform for leadership to be able to see our URIM faculty and and how fantastic they are. And I think um, that was a really exciting prospect for us and we really were able to sort of pull that together. Um, Simultaneously at UCSF um, for several years, so UCSF UCSF has a program called um, the Watson Scholars Program that, provide some financial support and time for uh, URIM faculty who are joining the practice. Uh, And as part of that, they have uh, a program called the Fuego Program through the Latinx Center of Excellence that's open to Black and Latinx faculty. Uh, Fuego stands for Faculty at UCSF Expanding Growth and Opportunities. That was about six or seven sessions. And so as we started to engage in conversation and the call for the collaboratories went out, we sort of started comparing, right? What do you do? What do we do? What's your session one? What's our session one? What gaps have you found that we're trying to fill? Uh, And so the excitement started building. uh, Because in diversity work, you don't always get to have conversations with people from other institutions, particularly during the time of COVID. That sort of outreach, we all sort of crystallize down into ourselves. Uh, to try to make sure that we were sustaining the things that we had been doing in the best ways that we could. Uh, And so to put the project together to really hammer out, like, what was this proposal going to look like? What were the things that we wanted to do was a really amazing opportunity. Um, And so we started to think about, well, what were the things that we really wanted to do? We wanted to sort of align and see what these two programs looked like in different contexts and with different drivers. Uh, And we wanted to make sure that we studied and evaluated what the impact was, both on the faculty who went through the programs, so Was it impactful? Was it meaningful? Did it help them? But also to be, and because we are all in diversity work, to make sure that we weren't putting burden on the URIM faculty to put them through a leadership program and then make them sort of forge the path themselves. Uh, And so part of it is, what is the exposure to leadership and how how does this program impact the leadership who participated, who saw the pitches, who were on the panels and answering questions from our faculty? Um, And that's happening at both places. Uh, And we debated and negotiated things that felt important at one program and the other, and we know that with educational programming that context matters right it's very significant. Where you are and what kind of support you have and we're hoping to be able to document that as we now we've started to analyze some of our work and so we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, in a minute, but uh, but to see. What are the ways that these programs in different contexts really function in the same way and support the faculty in ways that they need? What are the gaps? What are we missing? Uh, And also how are we impacting the institutions and our institutional leadership by really featuring the excellence of our URM faculty?
0: Well, Richard, you touched a little bit on this impact of the pandemic, uh, or as a lot of our guests for these podcasts have been pointing out, we're really talking about a twin pandemic where uh, racial inequality and injustice was highlighted at a time in which there were also unique threats to people's health. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned the pandemic as being valuable for recruiting, that it heightened the importance of the topic. I'm wondering, were there any other pandemic impacts, uh, either things that facilitated
4: your work or what we would usually expect, things that impeded your work? A lot, actually. I mean, in both directions. I think um, for many people who participated in the program, there was a feeling of like one more thing to do on Zoom and also a feeling of, wow, it's really nice to hear what other people are going through. Uh, And I think we had that as the people who were the leaders of the project where we were sort of like Scrambling to figure out how to convert all of our other roles into virtual roles, and make sure that our learners were getting the clinical exposures that they needed, and also just sort of continue to think about how do we continue to develop our faculty so we don't lose three years, or we didn't, no one knew how long it was going to be. Remember at the beginning when it was going to be you know two weeks and we were all going to be inside and then it was going to be fine, uh, and then uh, when you added sort of uh, the uh, the racial inequity and the um, Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the sort of highlighting of uh, structural and systemic racism that's happening throughout our country, the personal impact on the people that we were working with was obviously going to be incredibly intense and significant. And so, you know, at a time when people were looking to be either spend a little bit more time at home with their families, particularly people in medicine, um, to ask them to do something that was not only sort of just maintaining but growth related, uh, was a double-edged sword in some ways. Walter, I don't know what thoughts you have about that.
5: I mean, I, I agree with everything. I think, too, um, even the, the second year of it, you know, with the different variants of the of the uh, COVID strands, um, it was difficult because one day we were in, then we had to change to hybrid. Um, when we were in person, it was really hard to be connected to each other because everyone's wearing a mask you can barely hear each other you can't see each other um and so that really played a part in the community building aspect of it um as well and so we were just really grateful that people were willing to be flexible you know with us um and also um you know as richard talked about the burnout as far as clinical obligations that folks had um having to miss sessions because you know, they were on the wards or having to help their colleagues who might have been sick, um, all of these things impacted. But um, again, we're just really grateful for the flexibility of, of all of our participants because it was a bit of a seesaw <laughs> for, some, for some of the months.
4: And there's something to be said, I, I think, and this came up in some of our data, and I really appreciated the the insight about this. And I, I think we're, we've all now, three years in, recognized it, but I think our participants recognized it really early. The difference when you sit down in a room next to someone and mm. that those five or 10 minutes before the session gets started where you're like chit-chatting with the person next to you, you don't do mm-hmm. on Zoom, right? You don't sign on to a Zoom and start talking about like, you know, what that crazy thing that happened to you that weekend because everyone's listening as opposed to sort of the person that you're bonding with who's, who's sitting next to you. Um, And and I think a lot of our participants felt that really strongly, that there was something that was really valuable about that, um, to be able to have that experience when we were able to, um, and to really connect in that way. You know, we just um,
5: had our third cohort start um, earlier this month. And um, one of the participants had shared a story. And um, I'm not going to share their name, of course, but, you know, they essentially had shed some tears and was a really vulnerable moment. Um, And I don't think we could have had that moment over Zoom. Um, And so that was just really impactful um, to experience with them Um, and for them to genuinely say like, wow, like I've never seen collectively this many folks in one room since I started the institution, I think was really, really powerful. And you just don't get that over Zoom
4: And on a personal note, right? Like Walter started at NYU during the pandemic. And I think like we hadn't seen each other very much in person and started like the FLDP was the thing that we started. We now have, we call it the Walter and Richard show and we do sessions together all the time but like we hadn't done that yet. And like, this was a way for us to do that. I just wanted to share that because it was meaningful.
3: And I do think that as you mentioned the challenges the opportunities that were seen with the pandemic it kind of opened up some other horizons that we just didn't expect. And, you know, Walter, although I agree with you and I agree with Richard about the side conversations or walking down to get coffee and you see someone and you say, you know, I haven't met you or I haven't talked to you. And suddenly you had this rich conversation. And for you, Walter, I think some of the moments that we found. Uh, on Zoom have been pretty important because people felt perhaps the safety of their own house and they were able to express some of their concerns or the vulnerability that they had during the pandemic. So we've seen kind of both pieces that I think were important. My question to you was more as being the director for the diversity and, and inclusion, What did you find regarding some of the staff members? Because I know what we saw from the physician's perspective, and as an anesthesiologist, we're initially there all the time for the, um, during the entire of the pandemic but from the staff perspective was different. There was furlough; they were out of job, they were not sure whether they were going to come back. And I'm curious how that affected your overall leadership program because you need the staff, the administrative staff in order to coordinate and make
5: the program successful. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think, you know, I started during the pandemic, (laughs) I started uh, remotely, Um, I didn't meet any of my team members, I want to say, almost four months (laughs) until I started into starting. Um, And so, you know, being someone's supervisor or being someone's colleague, um, and having never sat down in front of them in person, I think, was something I was struggling with a little bit um, for me personally, um, and then trying to motivate and keep the motivation up for our staff during a pandemic, during a lot of uncertainty um, was challenging. Um, and then, you know, I think for our particular circumstance, we had a a bit of staff transitions during that time as well, um, and so that left that not only left room for. Um, us to engage over zoom but there was just empty roles that I was trying to uh fill and have everyone else fill in where they can um all while still trying to keep this motivation up right <laughs> during the, during the pandemic um I think our team did uh really well um I think we got by um I don't know if we are done the pandemic but you know we got by the last year um Being a team, I think, Um, I think we um, really had to, uh, you know, get to learn each other over Zoom. Um, We had some new folks um, start throughout the year. And so I really tried to make sure we had some icebreakers and things like that so we can just be a little bit more personable because I think it's really important to trust each other and, and learn each other in order to work well. Um, so that was really important for, for me as a leader in the office and also um, checking in with everyone personally. Um, I, I joke with Richard, like we spend times for our one-on-ones just like shooting the breeze. <clears throat> um, and we often say like, this is my favorite time of the day, <laughs> you know, meeting with you because, um, you know, it was just a time for us just to connect personally. And I think that really helped um, throughout the entire pandemic and and even still now in this hybrid Um, format that we're
4: in. And that I think is true for our collaboratory as well. I mean, I think um, different than some other research meetings I've been in, and I think that this is a function of both the sort of like genuine affection that we all have for each other and that we work in diversity affairs and we're talking about topics that are really identity specific and that we have been sort of, I think, stressed in so many different ways out in our clinical roles and in our administrative roles and all of those things. Our, our team meetings, which have been relatively regular, start with a pretty long process and debrief about how are things going? Like, how are you? Before we dive into this work that, that requires us to sort of think deeply about issues that are challenging in academic medicine, et cetera. I apologize for the sirens behind me. I don't know if you can hear them, uh, but the things that are really challenging, like how do we then debrief and make sure everyone is okay to keep going Uh, from there and that was I think a really therapeutic thing that we got to do with each other um, to also have the context from both coasts.
3: Yeah, it's amazing to all of us. I think that the, the connect piece during our meetings has been a significant time to do that, but also such a key piece to keep us moving forward. And um, knowing that hopefully we are doing the right thing and we are uh, you know, collaborating to uh, improve the world we live in. Uh, so it's been about a year, year and a half or so since the, uh, the award was given. And I'm just curious of whether you could share any preliminary
4: results with us. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, the first thing that I'll say is that uh, I I had the privilege of of interviewing the first cohort, uh, each of them individually, um, and also our institutional leaders. And just like, we have some phenomenal people and some incredibly thoughtful people uh, who were involved in the program. I think from the, and where our formal analysis is ongoing, so this is absolutely preliminary, and none of this is is sort of, to be connected to. And this second year of our project is when we're interviewing folks at UCSF who went through the Fuego program, so we don't have data yet from uh, UCSF. But at, at NYU, I can share that people were uh, really excited to participate in the program. Uh, Walter mentioned earlier that that sense of community came up in almost every uh, in almost every interview that I did, the junior faculty reported feeling like they had not seen so many people who held shared identities in the same room, um, in their time. Uh, there are these amazing stories of, you know, before I did this program, something came up in my department and I would have struggled and spent hours to days trying to figure it out. And in a very short order, I texted five people from my cohort who have similar struggles and we came up with a solution in an hour. And, Brett, it saved me time, it saved me energy, all of those kinds of things. And so I think that was one of the first things that we found. Uh, I think uh, almost everyone commented on um, uh, confusion about what the promotions process was and how and, and when people get promoted. And we had some folks in the first cohort who were at very different levels, but that process What we have, I I think this is uh, similar in other places, but I think every place is a little bit different. We have three tracks for promotion. There's a clinical track, a scholar track, and then a research track that may or may not be tenured. Uh, And so figuring out what, what level and what you have to do and when is it appropriate to go for promotion, Uh, who gets mentorship committees uh, and like everyone should have them and who should be on them, should they be people you report to or not, uh, was a big sense of confusion. And so that was one whole session that we did was called the pathway to promotion. uh, And that came up pretty frequently about that. That was just useful to hear the really brass tacks, like how do you get promoted and what does it mean for you when that happens? Um, And then from the institutional leaders, Uh, one of our, uh, I don't want to call it a surprising finding, our institutional leaders sort of broke down into two categories, those who themselves are hold identities that are underrepresented in medicine and those who don't. Uh, From the ones who do hold identities that are underrepresented in in medicine, we heard very specifically, uh, where's my FLDP cohort? Like I need meetings like this and I want to be part of this. Uh, and from our leaders who hold some uh, more majoritized identities, we heard a lot of that. It was really uh, valuable to have uh, the pitches and to really know and understand the the sort of outstanding quality of the folks who are at our institution uh, and the other piece of data that we're still collecting, but we're looking at advancement among the faculty who participated both in terms of academic rank and in terms of taking on leadership roles. And we've been quite successful uh, at having people take on new leadership roles, many in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and many not in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is outstanding.
5: One of the um, other sort of anecdotal things I um, got as far as a result was, Um, I think some of the faculty had an opportunity to really understand um, how the institution works in a different way than in which they came in as faculty, Um, particularly for those who are looking to um, gain administrative leadership roles. Um, The group project, I think, was very eye-opening for a lot of folks because Number one, they were engaging with institu- institutional leaders in a different way, but then they were engaging in this process of brainstorming and strategy around an initiative that is really going to affect um, the entire school. And so, that that takes layers of understanding the culture, um, understanding just um, organizational wise how things work and 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 you know red tape and and who it needs to go by and who are the stakeholders. And I think that was really impactful as people think about their trajectory at the institution as well.
0: So as you were going about this uh, last year, year and a half of data collection and work, any anything unexpected that emerged, whether it was something about your process, something about your results, anything that, that uh,
4: caught you off guard or was surprising? Um, I think for me, Things that should be no surprise were a little bit surprising. Challenges with the IRB and getting things uh, through the IRB. You know, every time it comes up that that's a struggle, I I'm like, right, that's a really hard thing to get through. One of the uh, tasks that we're working on that I'm collaborating with uh, another educationalist here uh, is that we want to uh, have a faculty. Um, uh, cohort that we follow over time, and we're trying to get an IRB to look at people's educational data and things like that for people to a- voluntarily sign up. Um, but it's been a-, a challenge going back and forth with the IRB to try to get that done. Uh, and we're still pushing forward, and I believe it will happen. Uh, but those kinds of complications, I think, are a little challenging. I-, I have a couple of others, but I'll hand over to Walter also.
5: Yeah, um, as I mentioned before, our staff um, had some changes, and so um, to have a few vacancies within our staff really impacted our ability um, uh, to work to our maximum potential. Um, and I think you know between Richard and I, we we're just really juggling um, as much as we could and prioritizing, trying to make sure this was a success. Um, but there was certainly unexpected, and um, I think we did a good job, uh, all things considered. Um, And then also, you know, the pandemic, of course, you know, we started with one strand. We ended up with I don't know how many strands. Um, We were in, we were out. As we said, monkeypox came into play. And so I think, um, you know, the the multiple pandemics, as we mentioned before, um, as we're continuing to figure out, um, it's
4: still uh, a challenge for us. I think a pleasant surprise, and again, I kind of should have expected this, Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, like, we really bonded with the folks that we were working with, some of whom we didn't really know well at the beginning at UCSF and, and got to have really intense conversations with them. I think our program is definitely stronger. I remember a particular series of meetings where, um, Walter and I and, and Beth Harleman worked on a very particular session, uh, and Beth has someone in her family who is a teacher and so brought in some of the ideas about, um, like a warm responder that we hadn't really thought of. And so Mm. the... I was very focused on like what the research would look like and how we would get it done and what kind of data we would collect and the collaboration around the actual development of our faculty felt really wonderful. And it was really great to have that outside perspective. And, you know, that piece of it is so gratifying and it's so much of what we love. Um, And so that was really wonderful to be able to do together.
5: You know, I think Richard might've mentioned this a little bit, Um, as we came together on Friday afternoons, nonetheless, Um, it was a great time to be with folks who were engaging in similar work. We could um, talk about things that were stressing us. We could talk about strategies for um, advancing uh, the work. Um, And like Richard said, it was just an opportunity for us to build community um, in, in, in general as well. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about that community building element, which is, I think, one of those things we may have taken for granted before, because as as you noted, it does come naturally through those quiet conversations that we have, or, you know, Herodotus mentioned walking to get coffee during a break. And all of a sudden you take that away and you, you feel that lack very acutely.
4: Yeah. And it was right there in the title. I just want to give Kern credit, right? Like the Kern Institute credit for like designing something that required collaboration so that we could form those bonds, right? Like that was really... It, it was amazing. And you know, when we were first trying to put it together, we were worried a little bit about the logistics and the management, and it's been the most gratifying part, I think, in many ways. So you're now in second year of funding, and I'm
0: wondering, what's this next year gonna bring? What, uh, what future directions are you hoping for with this work?
4: Well, first, I'm really excited. Uh, Sarah has taken on uh, more of the leadership this year because the um, data collection is happening more at UCSF. Uh, but with her also came uh, uh, Dr. Ariane Tarrani, uh, who is a researcher at UCSF, who's done a, a ton of incredible uh, research in medical education and so brings like a skill set above and beyond even what some of us had. Um, and so adding her to the team has been fantastic. Uh, and our uh, we sort of changed our plan of analysis. We were going to analyze the data for each cohort separately at first because we had data from NYU and we were going to do it from UCSF what i'm really excited about is that we're going to analyze the data together now we're going to create the code book and go through and adjust as needed but to be able to look at both both cohorts simultaneously so that we can really think about what are the common themes uh and then to see where are the differences um and so that's going to be this is going to be the year of sort of collecting that and and doing the analysis so that we can hopefully have a draft of a manuscript uh by the end of the uh by the end of the second year which would be amazing um So, that that I think is what I'm hoping for this year. How about you, Walter?
5: So, I think uh, maybe not for this year, but thinking about the longevity of the program, uh, we, you know, considering the audience of the program um we are i'm gonna say running out but you know there are certainly um a limited number of folks we can tap into uh who identify as underrepresented at the institution who are junior faculty and so we'll need to begin thinking about how we might adapt the program uh for um different communities um, um or a larger community building opportunity um given how successful it was but Um, I know Richard and I had some ideas around other populations that might benefit from this type of uh, mentorship and and networking and professional development as well. So that's just something that we're thinking about uh, in the future in general, but not necessarily uh, this year for
4: sure. We've also been able to have some really interesting conversations with folks at other institutions about like whether this, right? Like one of the acknowledged sort of limitations of of our data, as great as it is to have two contexts, we are both large urban cities uh, who have relatively high proportion of URIM folks at our institutions. And so what does it look like to have a program like this somewhere that's not that? Uh, And so we've heard from some people that they would be really excited to have a program like this at, at, at their institution. Uh, and, uh, some folks who have said, you know, I'm not sure our institution is quite ready for this or that this is the next step for us. Um, and so I think one of the nice things about being able to document this in the literature and being able to sort of share this work with other people is going to be to say like what worked well and what didn't, what were the strategic things, um, that we did or that we learned from that we would do differently next time right the inclusion of leadership in our research and like the 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 consistent lens about thinking about we're not just trying to change the faculty who go through the program but the perception of the institution and the institutional leaders uh right like how often do our institutional leaders get to see a cohort of like outstanding black faculty do something together? Um, And so like that demonstration is really important to try to think about, right? How do we, like, as we try to create inclusion and not just improve compositional diversity, those are the kinds of interventions that we're hoping will be helpful uh, to change institutions and not just to put more burden on already sort of taxed faculty who hold minoritized identities. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's certainly such an interesting perspective. And although the unfortunate events that occurred, you know, in the last three years were perhaps the impetus for us to find momentum and move forward and make changes in many institutions that either... Um, systemic racism was present or was there but ignored. And now we are in a process to perhaps better the world we live in. So we, I personally appreciate the work that you do and all the data that you're collecting in order to make this a better place, better place for us, better place for our kids, better place for our faculty, staff and so on. We're wrapping up. We totally, again, thank you very much for all the um, the work that you do and the time that you're spending with us. I'd like to hear maybe for our audience, just a couple of take home messages so that they are aware or perhaps of uh, something that stuck with you that will stick with them as
5: well. One of the things I'll say is that um, for our particular program, uh, because it's related to DEI, I often say DEI is, is the long game. Um, <laughs> um, nothing sort of happens uh, in a sprint, um, and that um it's gonna take persistence and consistency to to see some some change. And so um I'm just fortunate to have great partners to do this work. And I think when you find really good partners, um the work becomes more enjoyable. And so Um, I just want to encourage everyone to um, keep fighting the good fight um, and and be persistent and steadfast in this work because it is important, it does matter, um, and you um, are making an impact for those who need it the
4: most. I I completely agree with that. I, uh, you know, one of the things that between what Walter said and what Haravita said uh, earlier is that I think... um, We are also seeing some folks who may not have been invested in this work previously, like start that sort of sense of return to comfort. Like, didn't we do this? Haven't we been doing this for a while? And that fatigue around some of this work. And so for those of us who are in DEI work, like to maintain that and to sort of still highlight, this is still a problem. You learned about this. It's still a problem. We haven't fixed it. Um, And I think programs like this are really Uh, essential to making sure that folks have uh, what they need and then the expansion of them, right? How do we make sure that now that we have supported some of our URIM faculty into some leadership positions that they continue to be supported, that they're not always the only one in the room or the only one in the room at least thinking about these issues. And then the other thing that I will say, uh, sort of as a wrap up is, you know, the other piece of this is that the network has been so incredibly useful and that as we move forward, right? it's expanded my thinking personally about, you know, we're struggling with certain things in the residency program, which is not part of this grant necessarily, but because of this work, I'm aware of the work that that Sarah is doing at UCSF and I'm gonna, you know, tap her to, you know, help me remember some of the, she gives workshops on stereotype threat for her residents and, and spotlight anxiety and imposter syndrome. And to really talk about all of sort of those interpersonal things that are happening that touch on our faculty, but also touch on other learners. And so how do we, how do we uh, maintain and even expand our networks at times when we feel really tapped out, uh, I think is an incredibly valuable skill and an incredible thing to remember. And I'm grateful for that. Well, Richard Green, Walter
0: Parrish, it was a pleasure to talk with both of you. Thanks so much for sharing all these details about your project and what comes next.
5: Thank we are so very much.
0: grateful, thank you so much.
5: Yeah, have a great day.